Blog Talk Radio. Now we've got everybody on board. So, yeah, got a little uh, little rum from the Key West First Legal Rum Distillery. Yeah, which is very, very nice. A little bit of a mouthful, but it tastes very good, I promise you that. And they recommended blending it with some uh, eggnog, and we're not disappointed. No, not at all. Uh, anyway. So, yes, Chris and I just got back from Key West from our um, preliminary run meeting, everybody we're working with um, type thing. Yep. Yeah. Got to meet <clears throat> Ted with uh, the uh, Key West Ghosts and Mysteries Tour, a friend yep. of ours uh, down there who helped us set the whole thing up. And then, of course, we got to meet uh, David Sloan, yep. uh, who runs the Ghost Fort, uh, Sloan's Ghost Fort down there, which is the East Martello Museum, actually. It's an old fort down there. Yeah, Civil War Fort. Yeah. Uh, but it's also where Robert the Doll is. Yeah. And so um, that's going to be our Saturday night um, investigation and tour. Uh, again, 90-minute tour. Um, and 60 minutes of investigating yeah. thereafter. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yep. Yeah, and David's actually applying the equipment for that. So that is big. Yep. Um, and had some very interesting experiences while we were there. Um, so, But we're not going to get too much into that because mm-hmm. we want you to have your own experiences when you come with us. There's a lot of experiences we had down there. Yes. And then Sunday, we're going to the Audubon House. Yes, so we met up with our contact at the Audubon House and kind of scoped out where we picked up some equipment and that sort of thing. We read our stories. And that's uh, four hours investigation? Four or five hours, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so that's the, the true long investigation. But it's um, still going to be two big, fun events down yeah. there. So Yeah, yeah. and that yeah. one we're going to have to bring our own equipment for. But that's okay. But that's doable. Pack, pack lightly. Yeah. But, yeah, so we got all that going on and more. We're going to be releasing more uh, photos and some video snippets from our experience down there this past week. And uh, stay at the location where we'll be staying in a year. And, uh, of course, the buildings are haunted there. Of course. Um, because, well, we chose wisely. <laughs> it is KOA, so. It is. Isle of Bones. So. Um, but, yeah, if you have not made your reservation, again, we're a few minutes a year now, so definitely make that deposit, make that reservation, because space is limited. Uh, we only have a set number of, uh, of spaces available, and we're about a third to half done now. About a third now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, definitely sign up for that and come out with us. Um, other big things, we got our first pop crawl starting this weekend on this Saturday. Yep. Uh, pop pop, I should say. Pop pop, pop not crawl. Two stops. We're going to start inside uh, Penny Lane Pub over there at Fifth and Franklin, and have a couple of stories inside Penny Lane with uh, with with a brew that'll be included with the uh, ticket price, and then there'll be an abbreviated outdoor walk on our way over to Triple Crossing, uh, the uh, the brewery down there on uh, Fushi. Where we will duck inside, you'll have another drink, and uh, while we will not be telling stories inside Triple Crossing, you'll have the opportunity to uh, just generally chat with us. We'll do a little bit of Q and A, so yep. it'll be a good time. Yep. Um, as you can see, we have our tree set up. Hi, Betty. You know, come say hi. So far, there's interest, but not climbing. Not climbing yet. A little chewing. Yeah, we'll see what happens, but. Yeah, so anyways, we got all the kitty cats seem to be happy to see us. So we are not getting... Uh, we're not getting so No, so we're happy to see them too. 
And uh, yeah, so we, uh, it's a good thing that this week we decided to do some uh, traditional Christmas stories. Yeah. So these are, since we uh, were pretty busy over the last week, we didn't have too much time to, uh, to, to do a lot of research. And so this time we just basically had to read some ghost stories from, uh, from the, the good old days, if you will, and uh, decide which ones we wanted to uh, go ahead and share with you tonight. Yeah, so the, we got to, we'll see if we can get to three, um, because some of these ghost stories are a lot longer than the ones we normally share with you. But, well, last year when we did the Victorian Christmas yeah. stories, we only did two, and so we'll see what it comes out to. But all the same, yeah, we got a couple of uh, good old traditional Christmas ghost stories to share with you yeah. tonight. So this first one actually appeared uh, in time in December of 1886, and it never seems to have been reprinted. After that, um, there's no information about its author, but um, other than the name that appeared on it, and she signed it Emily Arnold. Um, she is believed to be Mrs. Henry Arnold, uh, most likely the same person who wrote a three-volume novel, novel, Monk Hollow, under that name in 1883. Do any questions before we get started? Nope. People saying hi. So hi, hi. Alex and Paul. Hi. Hi, Donnie. Donnie, who's, you're, you're going to be joining us down in Key West right. next year. I promise you it's going to be a lot of fun. And Patrick, Merry Almost Spooky Christmas. Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we made it back. We uh, we endured our encounter with Robert the doll. Yeah. And Robert's very friendly. Yeah, he actually show him respect. He's it's all about respect. Um, and so. we definitely respect Robert. Yeah. And uh, Roberta says, hi, Kitty, be good with the tree. <laughs> yeah, this, this has been sitting in my lap. Nico is somewhere. Oh, he's right here. I'm sure. sleeping. Yep. And Nina's on this chair. And Lulu, I don't know where she is. Lulu's being Lulu. Yep. All right. Ready to go? I think so. You sure? Or not? I thought you were. Okay. Yes, I hated leaving India where I'd been so happy for six years with my dear father, who was the colonel of a crack cavalry regiment at Allahabad. And now I was ordered home, for my health had begun to fail under the scorching sun and invariating climate. Home, did I say? Alas, England was no home to me. All that was nearest and dearest to me were in India, and I felt that my heart would break at leaving my dear old dad, to whom I had been all in all this, my mother's death, which had occurred when I was only 14. But it was no use grieving over the inevitable. I had to go. And as I had no wish to make a parting harder than by useless tears, I tried my best to conceal my sorrow. I fancy my father did the same. Never can I forget the day when he saw me board the steamer with my chaperone, Mrs. Thumbs. Now there's a long, lingering embrace, a few broken words, and then a gulf of waters widens between us and his dear gray head, upright form faded away from my sight as the vessel plowed her way through the smooth green waves. Upon landing, I was to go to some relatives, my mother's own sister, the Trevlin, who lived in Cornwall at Tigerton Castle. By Trev and Bull and Penn, they may know the Cornish men. The Trevlins were a very old Cornish family, and they had telegraphed ever since the reign of Elizabeth. But alas, of late years, bad times had come upon them. They had grown poorer and poorer, and a succession of spendthrift heirs had wasted the substance, and my aunt with her son and daughter had had much ado to make both ends meet. At all events, I was to stay with them for a time, 
doctor seemed certain that the fresh Cornish air and bracing salt breezes would prove to be beneficial to me. I was naturally a very nervous and excitable temperament, and I was a good deal interested in finding that among the passengers was the celebrated Mr. Delaware, the clairvoyant and mesmerist, on his way to England. To tell the truth, I was just a little frightened of him. He was so tall and thin and solemn-looking with large, pale eyes, which seemed to read one's innermost soul. I felt his piercing orb fix on me more than once during the first week on board, and I took care to keep out of his way. But one evening, the captain announced that Mr. Delaware had kindly offered to entertain us with some of his spiritual manifestations and mesmerism. Of course, we were all very eager to witness the performance, which proved to be decidedly wonderful. It consisted of thought reading, riding upon a slate by invisible agency, and mesmerizing mesmerism most of the crew, who were invited, of course, up on the platform for that purpose. As I was leaving the saloon at the end of the evening, the captain asked me to go with him on deck, and having received permission from Mrs. Solomon, I followed him. It was an exquisite night, brilliant and balmy. The sky was one vast sheet of purple, brilliant with stars, the moon, and a huge globe of silver illuminating the wide expanse of the gleaming waters. Like most sensitive persons, I was particularly alive to beauty in every shape and form. And breathless with delight, I leaned against the side and watched the phosphorescent light from the great green rollers as they glided away to leeward but my reverie was interrupted by a voice close to me. A lovely night, Miss Jocelyn. I started, looked around, and there at my elbow was his tall, thin, erect, glassy eyes fixed on mine with Mr. Delaware. I assented coldly, for I was somewhat annoyed at the intrusion, but I did not, but nothing daunted, he continued. You have a true artistic temperament. I see you are emotional and keenly susceptible to beauty. Is that not so? How can you tell? I replied, interested in spite of myself. He laughed. I'm used to studying faces, and yours is a characteristic one. You would have made an excellent transmedium and clairvoyant. Should I? I exclaimed to much astonishment. Could you mesmerize me? Easily, he returned, smiling. Let me try. I hesitated. Will you promise not to make me do anything foolish? Yes, on my honor as a gentleman, you shall only tell me what you see, and the captain will stand by you the entire time. I felt horribly nervous, but eventually curiosity got the better of my fears. I endeavored to make my mind as blank as it was directed. I fixed my eyes on those of Mr. Delaware. The sensations I experienced were curious. First, a hazy mist seemed all up to obscure my surrounding objects, to which Mr. Delaware's eyes alone penetrated. Then I lost consciousness, and as in a dream, there arose before my mental vision a fair but wintry landscape, bounded by frowning hills whose peaks seemed to touch the gray skyline. Overlooking the valley stood an old picturesque building with castellated battlements, cloths in a tangle of creepers. As I gazed at it, the light faded, a dim obscurity succeeded in the shafts of the sunshine. A cold blast seemed to turn my blood to ice, and from the gathering gloom, there approached a tall figure enveloped in a martial cloak. And it hid its features. I could hear a deep voice mutter, To you, a task is given. See that you perform it. She? 
who through love the treasure seeks, puts nerve and courage to the test. But woe beside her if she fails, the phantom knight's lost bones to rest. I stood in breathless horror, unable to stir a limb, and the figure raised his arm. A skeletal hand emerged from the heavy folds of the cloak and touched my elbow. A scorching pain shot through me. I uttered a shriek and awoke to find Mr. Delaware bending over me anxiously. Well, he said interrogatively. How strange, I murmured, passing my hand over my eyes. But why did you hit me? You must have done so, for my arm hurts dreadfully. And I pulled up the loose sleeve of my dress and looked at it, but there was nothing to be seen. I have not touched you, replied Mr. Delaware. Was your vision pleasing? No, not very, I returned, thoroughly puzzled. I saw a castle and a figure, probably foreshadowing what is to happen, Miss Jocelyn, said the Nostradamus. Heaven forbid, I exclaimed. And I wished him and the captain good night and went to my cabin, and not a little upset and nervous. I wrote down the Doggerel verse I had heard, at least, or at least I should forget it. I retired to rest with my head full of the vision I had seen. But my sleep was dreamless, and I woke the next morning ready to laugh at myself for my fears, and to think I was a fool to have been allowed to have allowed Mr. Delaware to practice his uncanny arts upon me. When I met him briefly, I asked him to say nothing about it, as I did not wish Miss Sumners to know how foolish I had been. I cannot understand, he said, how you managed to make me unconscious. I quite lost myself for a time. You were unconscious for ten minutes, he replied, regarding me gravely. It was simply the extraordinary power that a strong and trained will has over a weaker one. And you, pray forgive me for saying so, are highly strong in organization and so peculiarly susceptible to magnetic and spiritual influence. Do you believe in spirits, I asked, much interested? Certainly I do, for I have every reason to think the vision you saw last night came directly from the spirit world. You'll know one day when you do. Will you tell me if I'm right in my belief? I promised, feeling vaguely uncomfortable, the subject then dropped, nor did we again allude to it. Miss Somers and I were landed at Plymouth one chilly day in the beginning of November. She was going on to London the next morning after she handed me over to the tender mercies of my relations, whom I had expected to meet me. We drove to Chubb's well-known and comfortable hotel where we were duly ushered into a cozy oak-paneled apartment, a blazing fire burning on the hearth, the table laid appetizingly for dinner. I pulled off my hat and cloak and knelt down on the hearthrug to warm my chilled hands while Miss Summers bustled about with her numerous parcels and bags. Worried her maid, interviewed the waiter, and finally departed to arrange her belongings for the night. I was feeling terribly forlorn and homesick, and an inexpressible longing came over me to have my dear old dad's loving arms around me once more. With trembling fingers, I drew from my neck a thin gold chain to which I was attached a lot a locket. I opened it and with brimming eyes looked at his dear, kindly face. Alas, it would be many weary months before I saw it again. I was just making up my mind for the luxury of a good cry when the waiter announced a visitor. It was my cousin, Derek Trevelyan, whom I had not met since I was a tiny child. I sprang to my feet as he came forward and took my hand with such frank, honest sympathy in his dark gray eyes that my heart warmed to him at once. And then he was so handsome. After all, beauty is a gift of the gods, and its sway is not omnipotent. 
it is all very well for wise people to appreciate it, saying that it is but skin deep and that the charms of mind are better than those of person. But in my humble opinion, beauty wins hands down. Would Helene Troy, Nina Asi, and close or Cleopatra have received a quarter of the meed of love and adoration they exacted had they been plain women? Were they as sagacious as Minerva herself? Derek Trevelyan was exceptionally handsome. He was tall and finely built with straight, clear-cut features, resolute gray eyes, and fair hair, which would have curled all over his well-shaped head had it not been too closely cropped. And you are Ruby, he said in low, penetrating tones, still holding my hand in his firm clasp. You are not much altered from the little girl I used to play with. My mother is longing to receive you. She sent you her best love and regretted that she could not come to meet you herself, but this is one of her bad days. I am so sorry, I replied, withdrawing my hand and motioning him to sit by the fire. Is Aunt Eleanor a great sufferer? Yes, at times she has dreadful attacks of neuralgia. And then he added, half to himself, poor mother, she is but ill-fitted to bear trouble. Our text was interrupted by Miss Summers, who welcomed my cousin very cordially, and we sat down presently to a cozy little dinner, admirably served, after which Derek insisted upon carrying us off to the theater where he had secured a box. The next morning, I parted from Miss Summers with many expressions of regret and the sincere hope that we might meet again ere long, and then Derek and I started for Targaryen Castle, which was some miles north of Penzance. It was growing dark when we arrived at the lodge gates and drove up a long avenue of fine old elms whose leaves were now whirling down in showers in the wintry blast. At the end of the avenue, the castle came into full view, but it was too dark to discern, though there seemed to be a singular air of familiarity about it, which troubled me considerably. In another minute, Derek had sprung out and was assisting me to alight. Welcome to Tregarthian. Uh, my fair cousin, he said heartily. I ran up the stone steps and entered the hall where I was folded into my aunt's warm embrace. My dear little Ruby, she said, kissing me affectionately, how glad I am to see you. You must be tired to death with your long journey and cold, too. I hope Derek has taken care of you. And she led the way to the drawing room, such a pretty, quaint, old-fashioned apartment sweet with the breath of flowers, where I was placed in an armchair and my aunt removed my hat and furs and chafed my cold hands in her warm ones. The tea stood ready on a little Chippendale table in front of the hearth, and while she poured me out a cup, I had time to look at her. She reminded me of my dear dead mother, and it altered but little in the last 12 years. Her features were delicate. She had Derek's eyes, and her pretty wavy fair hair, now plentiful besprinkled with gray, she looked almost too young to be the mother of such a stalwart son. As I sat there enjoying the warmth, Derek plied me with hot scones and cake. The door opened and a girl entered. She was not in the least like Derek or my aunt, being short and dark with black hair and laughing brown eyes. Such a pretty girl. She greeted me as warmly as her mother had done, saying, I'm so glad you have come to spend this winter with us. I've sometimes been rather dull without a companion, so I shall thoroughly appreciate your society. We must teach you to skate, and there are lovely walks and rides about here. I hope you will be soon at home with us and will not feel strange. I replied that I felt at home already, which I think pleased my aunt, for she patted my cheek approvingly. When she presently suggested that I might like to go to my room, my cousin Beatrice accompanied me. 
I thought you would prefer to be near me, she remarked, as after ascending the broad oak staircase, we traversed a long corridor with doors on one side and finally entered a room at the end, which was simply set, yet comfortably furnished, and contained a bookcase in which I saw several of my favorite authors and poets, a couple of armchairs and a writing table, and better than all, it opened into B's bedroom, which gave me much inward satisfaction. I found her a bright, clever, and amusing companion, and she chatted away to me while she helped me to arrange my knickknacks and get ready for dinner. The next morning, I woke early and, springing out of bed, ran to the window and looked out over the gardens, which extended far into the valley beneath, through which ran a streamlet spanned by a couple of rustic bridges and foaming over huge boulders covered with lichen. In a misty distance was a chain of hills whose rugged tops were hidden by clouds. Those hills seemed strangely familiar to me. Where had I seen them? Like a lightning flash came the recollection of Mr. Delaware and his interview with me. As I stood, stood spellbound, unable to believe the evidence of my own senses, the fog gradually rolled away, and there before me the landscape of my vision. A sense of utter bewilderment, not unmixed with fear, seized me. I dreaded I knew not what, but I longed to go out and get a view of the castle, which was impossible for my present position. So I dressed quickly and going downstairs, let myself noiselessly out of the hall door and ran down a grassy slope of the lawn until I reached a thicket of arbutus and laurel, which I had noticed from my window. Then I turned and faced the castle. Yes, there it stood, the very embodiment of my dream, the sun sparkling on the old diamond-paned windows and tinkling the few leaves left upon the trailing creepers as crimson. I felt as if turned to stone, and a great reverence for Mr. Delaware and his spiritual arts rose in my impressionable mind. As to the rest of my vision, I dared not let myself think of it. It was all too uncanny, too horrible but my unpleasant reflections were abruptly ended by my cousin Derek, who emerged from a side path in knickerbockers and gaiters, a gun over his shoulder, who seemed unfeignedly pleased and astonished at seeing me. Good morning, he said, taking off his cap, and the sun shone on his bright face and clustering brown hair. He looked so brave and frank and handsome that my fears left me as if by magic. You are early. I'm afraid you did not sleep well. Yes, I did, capitally. But I was possessed of a demon of curiosity and was obliged to come out. Now you shall show me over the grounds. He gladly assented, and we made a tour of the gardens, which were extensive and very lovely, though Dame Nature had a little too much her own way. Where there had been an army of gardeners were now only two. The acre or so of grass was unused and falling into decay. The stables were the same. The fine stud replaced, uh, reduced to a couple of old hunters and a rough pony. My heart ached to see the ruin, the desolation, that had fallen upon what was evidently once a splendid estate. I suppose my telltale countenance must have betrayed my feelings, for Derek turned to me half laughing, yet with an undercurrent of bitterness which he could not conceal. It is the old story, Ruby. We must cry, Ichabod, that glory has departed. The sins of the fathers are visited on the children. Do you know that in four months we must turn out of here? Is it possible, I cried aghast. Yes, we can no longer keep the wolf from the door. We have struggled out for years. The castle was heavily mortgaged during my father's lifetime. Now they mean to foreclose, and we can do nothing. My mother has enough to keep her from starving. As to myself, I mean to get a tutorship, and thank heaven my college education will ensure me that. 
It is hard to give up the old place that has been ours for so many generations, but beggars mustn't be choosers. There was a break in his voice. He turned away and busied himself with his gun. I felt very grieved, but I could think of nothing to say to comfort him. Presently, he continued, the worst of it is that there is a rumor that an immense quantity of treasure lies concealed somewhere in the castle. My heart stood still. Treasure? I repeated eagerly. Ah, then you have never heard the legend of Trevelyan's nor the ghost which is supposed to haunt Tregarthian. But how pale you are, Ruby. Perhaps I had better postpone my story. Oh, no, tell me now, I urged, and drawing my sealskin close around me, for I shivered intensely, I seated myself upon one of the seats on the terrace which flanked the south side of the building. Well, there was once upon a time, during the reign of Charles I, a certain Guy Trevelyan. Of course, he was a staunch royalist and something of a freebooter, too, I'm afraid, judging by all accounts. This worthy knight was in close attendance upon the king and was among the escorts sent to convey the Queen Henrietta Maria to England. Later on, he was dispatched on a secret mission to Spain, and whilst there, a quantity of Spanish treasure in the shape of money, drinking cups, flagons, and chalices, all in pure gold, fell into his hands and was brought here for concealment. Six months later, during the Civil War, Tregarthian Castle was stormed by the Roundheads, who were successfully repulsed by Sir Guy. But after the siege was over, the knight was found to be missing and was never heard of again. What became of him or the treasure, heaven only knows. Every successive heir to the estate has searched but uh, to no purpose. Have you? I asked breathlessly. Yes, indeed. You may think me a fool, but I have sur- surveyors and architects here for a month at a time. We found one secret chamber opening with a fl- mm, sliding panel from the picture gallery, but nothing more. There is an old doggerel r- rhyme about it. It runs something like this. She who through love the... He broke off suddenly as I started forward, crying. No, no, there must be some mistake. It can't be. Why, Ruby, what is the matter? You don't mean to say you are frightened. I tried to smile, but I felt horrified. What did it mean? You only too well I knew the remainder of the rhyme, for it haunted me. I had it written down in my desk at this very moment. I don't see much chance of any lovely young maiden braving this ghost of Sir Guy for my sake, he went on, but his tone seemed muffled and far away. I have a vague impression that he turns to me with keen solitude in his glance. Then he, the castle, everything faded into a dark mist. A ghastly terror seemed to shake my very soul, and I fell forward, unconscious. When I recovered myself, I was in the warm breakfast room, my aunt bending anxious over, over me with a bottle of smelling salts. My dear child, she said, how you frighten me. I've been scolding, Derek, for taking you out without any breakfast. You must remember, dear, that you are somewhat of an invalid and quite unused to our cold climate. I sat up and tried to smile. Please don't scold, Derek. It was all my fault. Then you must promise me not to attempt to get up another morning until you are called. Now, you must have some breakfast. At the mention of that somewhat overrated meal, I began to think I was very hungry, and so, much to Derek's satisfaction, he seemed terribly put out by my sudden class, the poor fellow. I allowed myself to be ensconced in a warm nook by the fire and did ample justice to my aunt's hospitality. In the afternoon, B offered to show me over the castle, and I gladly assented. It was a rambling, old place, big enough to put up a regiment of soldiers. 
two wings were entirely closed and only saw daylight when it was necessary to remove the dust that had gathered upon the time-worn furniture and brocaded hangings uh, relics of generations past. Everywhere I saw the same evidences of decay, of poverty that I had noticed out of doors. It was indeed sadly apparent that the glory of the Trevelyans had departed. When we entered the picture gallery, which ran the length of the north wing and was shut off by the heavy folding doors, the sun was setting and the darkness was coming up on a pace. We passed down it, our footsteps making no sound upon the tapestry floor. The eyes of the dead and gone Trevelyans followed us as eyes will do in an oil painting, B pointing out to me the most noteworthy of them. I'm afraid they were mostly a lawless race, given to cards, dice, and wine, and more apt to love their neighbor's wives than their own lawful spouses. This is the celebrated Sir Guy, said B, stopping short at a full-length portrait of a knight in armor, his plumed cask in his hand. He is supposed to haunt the castle. Isn't he an old fright? I looked up the dark and savouring countenance above me with somewhat of awe. Certainly I felt no indication to speak so irreverently of the phantom knight. His bold black eyes gazed straight out from the canvas in a defiant stare. And could it be fancy? They seemed to me illuminated as with an inward flame. I glanced hastily around. Was it a shaft of sunlight that had caused that unearthly radiance? No, the gallery was already shrouded in darkness. With a sudden feeling of terror, I turned to B, who had gone on and said in a half whisper, I don't like this place. It is eerie. Let us go downstairs. In seizing her arm, I hurried her towards the door, and we ran down the corridor as if all the ghosts imaginable had been at our heels. B threw herself, breathless and laughing, into a chair when we reached the drawing room. I declare you have given me quite a scare, she said as soon as she could speak. What on earth did you hear or here. I expect Derek frightened you this morning with his silly stories. I wish you would not laugh about it, I returned rather pettishly. I detest ghosts and all that sort of thing. B jumped up and kissed me in her usual impulsive fashion. Poor old cuz. She looks like a ghost herself with her pale face and wondering blue eyes. Am I really so hideous, I asked plaintively with an anxious glance at the, glance at the adjacent mirror. Oh, alarmingly so, laughed my mischievous cousin. That is, if one can be hideous with lovely, rippling auburn hair, eyes like violets, and a little face like a wild rose. You are too poetical to be truthful, I am afraid, I returned severely. But tell me now, have you ever seen the ghost? I? No, never, thank heaven. Sir Guy has not troubled me. He evidently thinks I am far too material a person to be honored with his spiritual attentions. But with an ethereal being like yourself, it may be different. I should not be at all surprised if he paid you a visit, if only out of deference to your personal charms. I have always heard that he was a great admirer of beauty, quite a gay Lothario, in fact. This was too much. I was feeling horribly nervous and unstrung, and here, to be's utter dismay, I burst into a fit of hysterical weeping. In an instant, she was on her knees beside me, her arms clasping my waist, her pretty, soft, rosy face pressed to mine, while she whispered contritely, my little darling cousin, do forgive me. I am a brute to tease you. I did not mean a word of it, but I am not accustomed to the society of such a delicate little flower as you, so you must forgive me. Sir Guy is a myth. No one that I know of has ever seen him or any other ghost. Of course, all old places boast of one. It is the proper thing to have, like old silver, old port, and ancestral portraits. So she petted and cheered me until I gradually I recovered myself. 
though it was some time before I could quite shake off the nervous, uncomfortable feelings that had risen my breast since my arrival. The days slipped away. Go ahead. You want to take yeah. Okay. The days slipped oh, yeah. away very quickly, and soon I felt a slight at home and happy with my relationship. Though there was scarcely any hour in the 24 that I did not think with a swelling heart of my dearest old dad and so many, many miles away. I grew rapidly stronger and better. The pure Cornish air laden with the briny breath of the broad Atlantic blew a faint color into my cheeks and perhaps a hidden happiness which I scarcely yet realized. It lent color to my eyes, and yes, I was happy, for I had felt that Derek Treblin loved me. I was not a child, and I had a certain amount of experience in the ways of mankind in India, so I was not likely to deceive myself. I read his secret in the ardent gaze, of his honest gray eyes, of the fervent clasp of his hand, and the tender inflection of his voice when he addressed me, and gradually the conviction dawned upon me that I reciprocated his affection. And with that knowledge came the belief that it was up to me to do something. What? I could not determine to help him in this crisis. As the time passed, his resolute young face grew graver and graver. On more than one occasion, I found my aunt in tears, which she vainly endeavored to conceal. Even my irrepressible, irrepressible cousin B seemed to be sad and anxious. Only too well I knew the cause. In three months, they would be homeless. I never learned the value of money. My father was scarcely a rich man, but we had always had enough for comfort, if not luxury. But now I longed for wealth, and ardently the most interrated miser could have done. I had quite... I had now quite gotten over my fear of old Sir Guy Travelon, and in fact passed an hour or so every day in the gallery, which commanded a magnificent view of the surrounding country, with exquisite hills and dales I was constantly sketching. We spent a pleasant Christmas Eve and the rector of the adjacent parish and his noisy family together with some distant neighbors, and they were all our guests, and after dinner we had charades finishing up with a dance. The next day would be a Christmas tree for the village children, at which B and I had worked hard for some weeks, and an entertainment at the schools for the old men and women. On New Year's Eve, we were bidden to dance at the Viscount Rufflands, about 10 miles away, to which a festivity both B and I were looking forward to with feverish eagerness. We had seen a good deal of the Honorable Gerald Trevor, his lordship's eldest son, during the last week, scarcely a day passed without bringing him over upon some excuse or other, but he seldom went away without a glimpse of Bee's pretty face and some of her saucy speeches ringing in his ears. In truth, she snubbed him uh, unmercifully, but he seemed to like it, possibly because it offered such a complete contrast to the reception he usually met at the hands of the fair sex. Being the heir to a large possession, we started off in the high spirits for the ball. Derek having expressed his satisfaction at our appearance, when we secretly agreed left nothing to be desired. We were dressed all alike in white tulle and arrived safely. And uh, in spite of the slippery state of the roads and the snow that had been falling during the day, dancing had commenced and all the notables of the country were footing it merrily. The old oak panel rooms were gay with flowers and holly whose shining crimson berries gleamed like fire amongst the myriads of white light. During the evening, Derek and I found ourselves 
and the cool depths of the uh, conservatory.